from despair to hope. There have been times when one passage in today's parasha was, for me, little less than life-saving. No leadership position is easy. Leading Jews is harder still, and spiritual leadership can be hardest of them all. Leaders have a public face that's usually calm, upbeat, optimistic, and relaxed. But behind the facade, we can all experience storms of emotion as we realize how deep are the divisions between people, how intractable are the problems we face, and how thin the ice on which we stand. Perhaps we all experience such moments at some point in our lives when we know where we are and where we want to be, but simply can't see a route from here to there. That is a prelude to despair. Whenever I felt that way, I would turn to the searing moment in our parsha when Moses reached his lowest ebb. The precipitating cause was seemingly slight. The people were engaged in their favorite activity, complaining about the food. With self-deceptive nostalgia, they spoke about the fish they ate in Egypt and the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. Gone is the memory of slavery. All they can recall is the cuisine. At this, understandably, God was very angry. But Moses was more than angry. He suffered a complete emotional breakdown. He said this to God, Why have you brought this evil on your servant? Why have I failed to find favor in your eyes that you've placed the burden of this whole people on me? Did I conceive this whole people? Did I give birth to it? That you should say to me, carry it in your lap as a nurse carries a baby? Where can I find meat to give this whole people when they cry to me saying, give us meat to eat? I can't carry this whole people on my own. It's too heavy for me. If this is what you are doing, doing to me. Then, if I found favor in your eyes, kill me now, and let me not look upon this my evil. This, for me, is the benchmark of despair. Whenever I felt unable to carry on, I would read this passage and think, if I haven't reached this point yet, I'm okay. Somehow the knowledge that the greatest Jewish leader of all time had experienced this depth of darkness was empowering. It said that the feeling of failure doesn't necessarily mean you have failed. All it means is that you haven't yet succeeded. Still less does it mean that you are a failure. To the contrary, failure comes to those who take risks, and the willingness to take risks is absolutely necessary if you seek, in however small a way, to change the world for the better. What's striking about Tanakh is the way it documents these dark nights of the soul in the lives of some of the greatest heroes of the spirit of all time. Moses wasn't the only prophet to pray to die. Three others did so, Elijah, Jeremiah, and Jonah. The Psalms, especially those attributed to King David, are shot through with moments of despair. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From the depths I cry to you. I'm a helpless man, abandoned among the dead. You have laid me in the lowest pit, in the dark in the depths. What Tanakh is telling us in these stories is profoundly liberating. Judaism isn't a recipe for blandness or bliss. It isn't a guarantee that you will be spared heartache and pain. It's not what the Stoics sought, apathia, a life undisturbed by passion, nor is it a path to nirvana, stilling the fires of feeling by extinguishing the self. These things have a spiritual beauty of their own and their counterparts can be found in the more mystical strands of Judaism, but they are not the world of the heroes and heroines of Tanakh. 
Why so? Because Judaism is a faith for those who seek to change the world. That's unusual in the history of faith. Most religions are about accepting the way the world is. Judaism is a protest against the way the world is in the name of the world that ought to be. To be a Jew is to seek to make a difference, to change lives for the better, to heal some of the scars of our fractured world. But people don't like change. That's why Moses, David, Elijah, and Jeremiah found life so hard. We can say precisely what brought Moses to despair. He'd faced a similar challenge before. Back in the book of Exodus, the people had made the same complaint. If only we'd died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this desert to starve this whole assembly to death. Moses, on that occasion, experienced no crisis. The people were hungry and needed food. That was a legitimate request. Since then, though, they had experienced the twin peaks of the revelation at Mount Sinai and the construction of the tabernacle. They'd come closer to God than any nation had ever done before. Nor were they starving. Their complaint was not that they had no food. They had the manna. Their complaint was that it was boring. Now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. They had reached the spiritual heights, but they remained the same recalcitrant, ungrateful, small-minded people that they'd been before. That was what made Moses feel that his entire mission had failed and would continue to fail. His mission was to help the Israelites create a society that would be the opposite of Egypt, that would liberate instead of oppress, dignify, not enslave. But the people hadn't changed. Worse, they'd taken refuge in the most absurd nostalgia for the Egypt they had left. Memories of fish, cucumbers, garlic, and the rest. Moses discovered that it was easier to take the Israelites out of Egypt than to take Egypt out of the Israelites. If the people hadn't changed by now, it was a reasonable assumption that they never would. Moses was staring at his own defeat. There was no point in carrying on. God then comforted him. First he told him to gather 70 elders to share with him the burden of leadership. Then he told him not to worry about the food. The people would soon have meat in plenty. It came in the form of a huge avalanche of quails. What's most striking about this story is that thereafter Moses appears to be a changed man. Told by Joshua that there might be a challenge to his leadership, he replies, Are you jealous on my behalf? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. In the next chapter, when his own brother and sister begin to criticize him, he reacts with total calm. When God punishes Miriam, Moses prays on her behalf. It's specifically at this point in the long biblical account of Moses' life that the Torah says the man Moses was very humble, more so than any other man on earth. The Torah is here giving us a remarkable account of the psychodynamics of emotional crisis. The first thing it's telling us is that it's important in the midst of despair not to be alone. God performs the role of comforter. It is he who lifts Moses from the pit of despair. He speaks directly to Moses' concerns. He tells him he won't have to be alone in the future. There will be others to help him. Then he tells him not to be anxious about the people's complaint. They would soon have so much meat that he would make them ill, and they would never complain about the food again. The essential principle here is what the sages meant when they said, Ein chavush matirat atzmo mi beta asarim, a prisoner cannot release himself from prison. 
and need someone else to lift you from depression. That is why Judaism is so insistent on not leaving people alone at times of maximum vulnerability. Hence the principle of visiting the sick, comforting mourners, including the lonely in festive celebrations, and offering hospitality and acts are to be gdolomika balat pneashchina greater than even receiving the divine presence. Precisely because depression isolates you from others, remaining alone intensifies the despair. What the 70 elders actually did to help Moses is unclear, but simply being there with him was part of the cure. But the other thing it's telling us is that surviving despair is a character-transforming experience. It is when your self-esteem is ground to dust that you suddenly realize that life is not about you. It's about others and ideals, and a sense of mission or vocation. What matters is the cause, not the person. And that is what true humility is about. As C.S. Lewis wisely said, humility is not about thinking less of yourself. It's about thinking of yourself less. When you've arrived at this point, even if you have done so through the most bruising experiences, you become stronger than you ever believed possible. You've learned not to put your self-image on the line. You've learned not to think in terms of self-image at all. That's what Rabbi Yochanan meant when he said, greatness is humility. Greatness is a life turned outward so that other people's suffering matters to you more than your own. The mark of greatness is the combination of strength and gentleness that is among the most healing forces in human life. Moses believed he was a failure. That is worth remembering every time we think we are failures. His journey from despair to self-effacing strength is one of the great psychological narratives in the Torah, a timeless tutorial in hope. Shabbat Shalom.